Pastor Monk started, I'm going to start calling you that from now on, sorry, you're stuck. <laughs> uh, my name is Pastor Paul, I'm one of the co-lead pastors here with my wife, Pastor Britta. Uh, and Pastor Monk, Pastor Scott, I got to start with a question for the kids, and actually his question intersects with my question really well for you, and that is, have you ever waited for something for a really long time? Like just had this longing, this, this depth of hope for something. And then when it finally happens, what did you feel like? Right? What, what emotions came to mind when this thing that you've been waiting for, you've been longing for, you've been hoping for for so long finally came to pass? What did that do uh, within you? In my own story, I knew from a pretty early age that I was being called into ministry. I'm not entirely sure why, but God decided to make that clear to me. And so I knew for a long time that seminary, and particularly a seminary for our denomination at North Park in Chicago, was kind of what maybe I was being led to. And so my first day of seminary classes, I, like I can't even tell you, I had been waiting, I had been longing for this opportunity to go to seminary, to be with others who are seeking to follow after Jesus just like I was. And Pastor Bird and I were in the same class together. And she'll tell you, uh, after class, I almost like skipped along uh, the sidewalk because I was like giddy. I was so excited that this thing I had been waiting for, been longing for for so long was finally happening. This thing that I uh, had anticipated uh, came about. Now, it didn't always go as I expected. There was a lot of disappointments, actually. And so this is the uh, kind of experience, I want you just to, for a moment to kind of think about an experience like that, something you waited for, you longed for, okay? Uh, for those of you watching online, perhaps you can even write that in the comments. What was something that you waited for, you longed for? And just to kind of remember, to reflect, what did it feel like in your body? Where, where in your body did you experience those emotions and how did that settle with you and what, what was stirring within you? You see, this morning, uh, we're beginning a kind of the, as Pastor Britta said, we're still in the season of Easter. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to be sitting in these experiences of Jesus showing up to his disciples after the resurrection. Right? And think about the emotions that the disciples must have been feeling. They had this longing, this hope, this waiting for something that they could not wait to come. For generations, before they even existed, they were waiting and longing for a Messiah who would come and save them. And then when it seems as if everything is right on the cusp of, of breaking forth into the glorious day, Jesus dies. And they face this significant disappointment. Their entire world is turned upside down. But then, on the third day, Jesus comes back to life. And what they've waited for, what they've longed for, has come in a way they could never have imagined. And this is the, the kind of feeling I want us to capture as we enter into these uh, couple stories of resurrection. You see, Jesus uh, was, came into Jerusalem, right? He was crucified on a cross, he dies, and then uh, these women go and they find the tomb empty, right? They find that Jesus isn't there. And so then between the time that Jesus isn't in the tomb and the time that we'll hear about in a few weeks of when Jesus ascends into heaven, Jesus appears to his disciples on a number of different occasions, these resurrection experiences. And so for these next four weeks, we're going to be in this kind of afterglow of the resurrection, of resting into the reality that Jesus actually came back to life. 
And we're going to approach this uh, by looking at the Gospel of Luke. Luke is the third Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Luke's account kind of tells the story of how Jesus shows up, as Pastor Scott so beautifully illustrated before. He shows up to these two disciples who, after all these things they've experienced, they've heard that Jesus is no longer in the tomb, but they haven't seen Jesus. They're on their way walking, and Jesus shows up as they're going. And as they're going, he, uh, as Pastor Scott again said, he, he fills them with these ideas of understanding more of the fullness of who Jesus is. And then it says that they realize it's Jesus. Their eyes are opened. They see Jesus. And they cannot help but run back to the disciples and tell the disciples what's happening. And the disciples say, well, Simon also saw Jesus. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is with all of the disciples. This incredible experience of Jesus showing up, of seeing Jesus face to face. And so as we're uh, going to be looking at these stories, we're going to settle into each story actually for a couple of weeks because we really want to rest into this reality that Jesus actually came back from the dead. Like that should just completely reorient how we think about life. It does, in fact, reorient how we think about life. And then actually after that, what we're going to do and why we're looking at the end of Luke is moving in on uh, beginning on May 22nd, we're going to continue that story. For those of you who don't know, the author who wrote the Gospel of Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And so we're going to move from the book of Luke into the book of Acts beginning on May 22nd. And we're going to follow the book of Acts all the way through the end of the summer. Now that might sound like a really long time to sit in one book. But let me tell you, there is a lot of ground to cover in the book of Acts. So much happens as Jesus ascends back to heaven and now the Holy Spirit comes that is imparted to the people and the, the birth of the early church and all the ways that God is active and alive even after the resurrection, this new life that their eyes are open to. And so we're going to rest into that reality and we're going to continue that narrative. But this morning we uh, begin uh, the first part of that uh, beginning in Luke 24, uh, the, the road to Emmaus story. Now, you can tell by the chairs in front of me this morning, our sermon is actually going to look a little bit different. We're going to actually have an opportunity to hear testimony and story of someone who took a journey and had their eyes open more fully to Jesus. And so we want to kind of rest into that reality this morning. But before we do that, I'm just going to kind of lay some really basic uh, foundational groundwork from this story. We're going to go kind of quickly through this passage so we really can settle and have some time to hear this other story. Uh, and Pastor Scott, Pastor Monk, next week uh, is going to really flesh out the other part of that Road to Emmaus story. So come back. It's going to be really good. He's already told me about it. You're going to want to hear it. So, But today, we're just going to kind of briefly go over this and how this sets up for our story today. So in Luke uh, 24, which is, again, the third gospel in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as Pastor Britta says, it's about here in your Bible. Uh, Luke 24 will begin in verse 13. And I'll just make some brief comments on this uh, story to kind of set us up for next week for what Pastor Scott will delve into in more depth. Luke 24, verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to the village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. Jesus joins them on their journey. But they were kept from recognizing him. You see, there's something about these resurrection appearances, these uh, moments where the disciples see Jesus, that they actually can't quite fully understand who Jesus is without Jesus helping them to see. And so there's this kind of mystery to resurrection, right? Now, verse 17, he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. 
One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Oh, the irony of that, right? Are you the only one? He's actually the only one, right? He is the one who made this all happen. What things, he asked with a slight twinkle in his eye. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Again, this is that moment, right, where they have this longing, this expectation, and they're met with these disappointments. But there's this mixing together of their hope to create something more than they could ever fathom. What is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that uh, they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they did not see Jesus. For the gospel writer Luke, this is a really important and significant idea that the women are the ones who are the first witnesses to the reality of the resurrection. Uh, in that time, women, uh, their voice and their position wasn't uh, very elevated, right? Men were much more over women in that society. But here we hear in a number of uh, accounts of the Gospels that it is women who first witness the reality of the resurrection. And it is women who come and proclaim the first sermon, the first message, I have seen the Lord, Mary says to the disciples. This is significant. A significant call and help for us to see that it is these women who are the first to name the reality of resurrection. Jesus goes on to these two disciples. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You see, Jesus, he meets these two on the way, right? Jesus meets these two disciples as they're on their journey, as they're walking together. And it's not like these two disciples uh, wouldn't be familiar with all of the things that had just happened. And when Jesus says that your eyes haven't been opened to the ways of the prophets, right? They would know these scriptures. They would know these things to be true. But what Jesus does is it says he explains, or actually it says he interprets these things to the disciples. He opens up their eyes to a different way of seeing things, of interpreting the scriptures through the lens of who Jesus is and how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things. And so it's as these disciples and Jesus are going on their way, as they're moving forward, it's as if Jesus is looking backwards and helping the disciples to look backwards as they move forward into understanding the resurrection. Do you see that image? I'm going to do that journey again so you can really see. As you walk forward, Jesus is helping the disciples look backwards to understand the significance of what Jesus does so that they can move forward into understanding the future more fully. They understand the reality of the resurrection more fully. You see, in the Gospel of Luke, in all of these stories we're going to talk about in these next couple of weeks, it was essential for the people to see Jesus. They couldn't just hear about the tomb being empty. They had to see it with their own eyes. But we as uh, followers of Jesus many, 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 many years later, we don't have the luxury of getting to see Jesus face to face. And so we ourselves, we need to experience 
resurrection to understand more of the fullness of Jesus. Right? We all can point to these moments, these testimonies in our own life where we have experienced a moment of resurrection, something in our own life that has been raised back to life from death, and that helps us to see the fullness of Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do uh, with the rest of our time this morning is see more of the fullness of Jesus. And there's this uh, idea of as Jesus is moving forward and helping the, the disciples look backwards, uh, there's this term in our uh, denomination called Sankofa. And it's a term that comes uh, from uh, the country of Ghana. And in Ghana, it's this idea. It's actually this mythical bird describes this. It's as the bird is moving forward, it's looking backwards. And so the, the central idea is that we go back to retrieve things of value from the past. So that as we are in the present, we can move forward with a, a better understanding into the future. Now, in our denomination, uh, Sankofa has been kind of equated to this very intentional journey that happens. And it's a journey that happens cross-racially. And so what happens is there are people from all across our denomination, from all across the country, that gather together in pairs, and they go back and they look at these significant moments kind of throughout this journey that they take of the uh, civil rights movement. And so they begin in Atlanta, and they are on a bus, and they journey together on a bus in pairs to discover and look back and retrieve things of value from the past to help them be more present so they can move forward into the future. Now, at the very outset, I want to be really careful and very clear. Sometimes it can be easy uh, to take our own stories and to over-spiritualize them, right? Jesus wasn't going on a Sankofa journey with his disciples. That's not what we're trying to say this morning. But the foundational reality that Jesus was helping to interpret these scriptures, that Jesus is at work in renewing and resurrecting things from the dead is formational and foundational in us. And so then from that place of allowing those things to form and be foundational in us, our eyes can be opened as we seek to go back and retrieve things of value to move forward into the future. And so uh, this brings us now to a time uh, where I want to invite Nancy Dow forward. Nancy uh, is a congregate longtime member here at Newport, uh, and she has gone on this Sankofa journey with our denomination just a few weeks ago, right? Uh, and so we wanted to, get, uh, we wanted to kind of capture this moment where uh, Nancy is kind of in the afterglow of this experience. Uh, again, not a perfect one-to-one -one correlation, but a way for us to hear from her and to help our eyes be more opened to the fullness of the picture of Jesus. So, uh, Nancy, is there anything I didn't cover about Sankofa? You did really good. That was impressive walking back and forth across here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I will say that at the heart of Sankofa, is an understanding that we have much more to learn from each other about how to live more like Christ intended and how to show more care for each other. That is beautiful. Um, can we say thank you to Nancy for coming and doing this, by the way? Thank you. Um, Nancy has a whole lot of stories that she could tell. So afterwards, if you have more questions, her story is full of resurrection experiences, truly. Uh, but we just want to invite her to share about this this morning. So can you tell me, Nancy, how, uh, how did this journey start for you, this idea of going on Sankofa? Where did it begin for you? So it began right there at a Methodist church camp. The last time I went to summer camp, it was a special theme program on race. 25 teenagers, half uh, white teenagers from all over lower Michigan and half black teenagers from two inner city churches in Detroit came together and the intent of the program was for 
each group to walk in each other's shoes for a while. Um, the program was designed to, to flip things. The white teenagers became the black teenagers and vice versa. We did normal things, we swam, we you know, had cookouts and sleepouts and stuff. But the majority of the time we spent in group activities, um, if you can kind of visualize this, a group game of Monopoly or of life that is preset for the black kids to naturally excel and the white kids not to be able to catch a break. That's the kind of thing it, it looked like over the course of this week. And as a group, all of us just went for it. I mean, it was an amazing experience. And did I mention this was in 1969? <laughs> so, um, imagine a few people in here have played Capture the Flag. Capture the Flag was our Saturday night finale to the week. We were still in our reverse roles, but we weren't content with that. We didn't want to just pretend that we were black and they were white. We wanted to look like it. So we pulled out our clothes and we started sharing, <laughs> um, swapping. They wore our dashikis, we wore their dashikis. I'll tell you what that means later. <laughs> and they wore our tie-dye and bell bottoms. 1969, right? 1969. We were, we were quite a crew. We even helped each other look more like ourselves. And then we headed out to play Capture the Flag. About two hours later, we came very close to a very scary fight. And it was, and we initiated it. Because for a week, we couldn't catch a break. And that was hard. The fight was averted. We didn't get much sleep that night. But before we left camp, we all knew that our black friends had experiences of life that we didn't have, that we didn't even know existed. And they knew that there were white people that really wanted to learn and really wanted to understand. It was a phenomenal experience. That's the beginning of my journey to Sankofa, long time ago. Thank you for <laughs> laying that significant foundation for us. Um, so then from that, how did you find out about Sankofa and kind of what instilled within you like the desire to move forward on that journey? Okay, so in 2018, I read an article in the Seattle Times about the National Memorial for Peace and Justice that had just opened in Montgomery, Alabama. That's a picture of it is uh, in the upper right hand corner of the slide. Uh, upper left. <laughs> other left. Yeah, other, yeah. <laughs> and and this, the, this thing that's in the upper left went instantly onto my bucket list. A fast forward two years, 20, 2020, our superintendent, Greg Yee, invited our life group to go as a group to see the movie Just Mercy and come to a follow-up gallery. The movie was about a young lawyer named Brian Stevenson, lower left-hand corner, played by the people in the middle, who was serving an internship working with, the, with death row inmates in Alabama. When the movie credits started, I realized Brian Stevenson from the movie never left Alabama, 
He organized the Equal Justice Initiative. It remained in Alabama and continued to serve death row inmates and also created the Memorial for Peace and Justice and its partner museum, the Legacy Museum, both of which are absolutely amazing. I didn't realize this till the credits that all of these things were linked. When Greg Yee, when we met for the, for the follow-up meeting, it brought people from four or five covenant churches in the area. And we were there to listen to Dominique Gilliard, gentleman in the right, in the right upper corner, who was, who led the covenant program I'm going to do this backwards. <laughs> Love, mercy, do justice. I often get it backwards. And that was the first time that I heard the Peace and Justice Memorial referred to by its nickname, the Lynching Memorial. It was also the first time I heard the term Sankofa, or Sankofa Journey. A very short time later, like less than a month, Sankofa hit, the world shut down, and everything stopped. So January this year, so another two years, I'm going to let you cover the, the, the racial reconciliation yeah. class. And yeah, so part of this, too, just to kind of flesh out again. So uh, Dominique Gilliard is for our denomination, right? He serves in this department called Love, Mercy, Do Justice, which is an opportunity for us to, as denominational people to understand more of these things, to intentionally help us journey on these pathways. And Dominique has facilitated this Sankofa journey. And Greg is our superintendent for our conference. So he's uh, a denominational leader who's helped. And so at this meeting... You had seen this just mercy, and so from there, then that kind of instilled this idea of going on the Sankofa trip, that intentional trip, which coincided then, uh, Pastor Rick Mylander and Janet Batiste, one of our elders, uh, this uh, fall began, uh, they came to Pastor Britt and I and asked about this class, uh, an invitation or a journey towards racial righteousness, which is all, all of these things are kind of intermingled and, and connected to each other. And so then from that class, uh, that became some uh, a way for our congregation to intentionally be doing this together. And that coincided with your own story because you were in that class. Mm -hmm. And that then was where there was kind of this intersection yep. of Sankofa. Lots of intersections. Mm -hmm. So I found out that the Sankofa journeys had started again, and there was one in March. But I needed to find a partner to, to, to go with me, which is considerably easier said than done. And eventually determined that I was not going to pull this off in time. And would need to put a, put a shit out till till October when the next trip is. And then I get a text from Pastor Rick. Check your email right now. <laughs> the Dominique had put out a, a notice to a number of churches around the country because they'd had a change and they needed a white woman partner to complete the trip that was happening in just a couple of weeks. I took about two hours to figure out what was going on in my calendar in my life, and said I could go. Mm -hmm. uh, so, to make a long story short, I figured that only God could manage something so convoluted and bring so many parts of my life together in a complete circle in two weeks, which he did. Certainly the hand of God at work in much of this story. Yeah. Um, so, obviously then, with, if you're going to have an intentionally cross-racial journey... Uh, you can't do that alone, mm -mm. right? You're, you're only one, we're only one race. Um, and so as you did that, can you describe a little bit about the group that went and then also kind of tell us a little bit more about your partner? 
So these are all the group pictures of the Sankofa sojourners for March 2022. These, this group represents 16 pairs of intentional cross-racial partners. A lot more women than men in this group, which is not always the case. The ages range from, range from people in their 30s to, I think me, <laughs> <laughs> the majority being in their 40s and 50s. Uh, the big green bus in the picture was our transportation, our snack room, our classroom, our movie theater, and Saturday night's hotel room as they drove us from Memphis back to Atlanta. We spent a lot of time on that big green bus and got to know each other very well. And part of this whole thing, right, is that you're journeying with this group of people from kind of significant location to significant location, learning about and kind of retrieving things from the past, right, yep. to bring them forward into the, in you the present. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Jackie, your partner? So this is Jackie. We were introduced by email about two weeks before the trip. We talked, texted, and Zoomed, and she taught me a new way to grow tomatoes before we'd ever met each other. <laughs> Sankofa partners are roommates, they're mealmates, they're seatmates. They give us assignments for questions to discuss. You spend a lot of time with your partner. I grew up in a small, small white suburb of Flint, Michigan. Jackie grew up in Compton, California. I'd seen the movie straight out of Compton. Jackie had not seen it. Jackie lived it. Jackie told me in one of our discussion periods that she had never been around people who looked like me until she moved from Compton to Sacramento when she was in her late 20s. In our hotel room the first night, Jackie shared everyday life experiences like shopping for clothes and cars. And, and I didn't need superpowers of sensitivity and empathy to know that she had everyday experiences that were not like mine that weren't great. And this has been real time. This is 2022. We pray together often, most often on the phone. Last time, I was in the Dallas-Fort Worth airport on my way home. And Jackie is a mighty prayer warrior. Jackie, if you're online with us today, thank you for opening my eyes wider. Thank you for lugging my suitcases around. Thank you for lugging me up most of the hills in Georgia and Tennessee and Alabama. Thank you. You were an amazing Sankofa partner. And now a friend. We are indebted to Jackie, there is no doubt. <laughs> we, we do thank you, Jackie. Um, can you describe, uh, so as we've been obviously talking about this, uh, you took the significant journey where Jackie uh, kind of took, uh, held out her arm. Can you describe that to us? So many of you know I have pulmonary fibrosis, and it causes scar tissue in my lungs, which makes, which makes it difficult to breathe. The picture of these stairs from the bottom looking up is the first thing I saw at the first venue that we went to, walking up those stairs. And the other picture is the bottom of the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Um, the first time we met as a whole group, I explained my situation to them. I mean, breathing is something we do a lot, so I'm familiar with what happens. But people around me aren't, and I didn't want the group to be uncomfortable about me there. 
So I, um, I told them that I wanted them to feel comfortable asking me if they were concerned about me or, you know, I just wanted them to be comfortable and they were great. They helped me when I asked for it and even when I was stubborn and didn't ask. <laughs> Um, they asked me if I was okay a lot, and I told them I was, and they accepted that. Uh, at one point, I was in a public bathroom, and the lady in the stall next to me said, are you okay? And I said, yes, I'm okay. Thank you for asking. And she said, Nancy, I didn't realize it was you. I know you got this girlfriend. <laughs> so I knew they were pretty much okay. I learned some important things about my breathing on the Sankofa trip. One is the effect of intense emotion. Uh, it definitely has an effect. I also learned that the pollen level in East Coast states in March is not my friend. <laughs> and the reference to earlier, I learned that when I'm walking up a hill, if I can take somebody's arm, that it's easier for me. Jackie and I figured that out by accident the first day when we were walking up a long hill and I took her arm and went, wow, it's easier to get there this way. <laughs> Can you tell us about the um, bridge experience in particular? Yes. This is the first view we had of the Edmund Pettus Bridge as we drove into Selma. As we were getting out of the bus, Dominique asked me if I could walk over the bridge and I said, yes, I could. And then he gathers us all for instructions. And he said, we were walking over the bridge together as a group in, in pairs our, in our part, with our partners, two by two, silently, and we were walking at the pace that Sister Nancy could walk. So I took Jackie's arm and we walked across a living piece of history. It is a day that I will remember as long as I live. significant uh, moment of experiencing the empathy of, of a group of people who are seeking to see Jesus together, right, in the, uh, the empathy that Jackie held out her arm to you, right, so that you could go. Yeah, when we started this out, he, he, he worded it arm in arm, and I said, no, that's not right. Mm. I took her arm, mm. because it was, it, it, was, it was something very different. Mm. Um, as we uh, kind of are on these journeys together, right, you obviously had a significant um, eye-opening partner with Jackie, mm -hmm. uh, but we also need other women and men along the journey who help uh, open up our eyes. Can you tell us a little bit about some of those people for your Sankofa trip? Yes. The first night of Sankofa, we had the honor to meet two um, amazing icons of the civil rights movement, J.T. Johnson and Miss Lulu Jo Williams. These were real and primary players on the stage of something that we were about to go visit as tourists from a 60-year history perspective. They were amazing. They were in their 80s, and they're no less passionate about what they did in the movement. They talked about getting their marching orders every day, marching orders. As a kid in the, in the 60s, I saw pictures of huge crowds of black people walking but I had no idea the level of discipline and organization that is integral to the, the, the nonviolent protest movement. On any given day, they might be responsible for coaching newcomers on 
how to not react when provoked violently, or they might be part of the group that was assigned to go to jail that day if there were arrests, or they could be part of the group that, that um, was responsible for gathering the lawyers and doctors if that was needed. But the level of organization and discipline was truly incredible. They made Martin Luther King the man and the historical events surrounding him real. He was the man who could bring his people forward on the world stage. And his word on nonviolent protest was sacrosanct. They always spoke of him with reverence. He was Dr. King. Miss Lulu's marching orders on April 4th, 1968, were to man the phones in the offices of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. So Miss Lulu took the call when Reverend Martin Luther King was shot and killed in Memphis. Um, certainly as we have uh, heard all of this, um, there's significant uh, events that have taken place all along the way, right, in all of these different experiences. Um, and so I'm, uh, one of the things as we kind of come near a close is wanting to hear uh, what's kind of uh, across all of that time, but really what, what's really continued to resonate with you as you've kind of reflected on your time in San Colfer? There are three things. Um, first, the reoccurring role of discipline and organization in nonviolent protests, which I was just talking about. Particularly the extreme contrast between the calm, silent marches that I saw in pictures as a kid in the 60s and the violent reactions that often met them. Next thing was, I read the principles of nonviolent protest that earned Dr. King the Nobel Peace Prize, specifically that, I'll read it, <laughs> nonviolence seeks to defeat injustice, not people. Nonviolence recognizes that evildoers are also victims and are not evil people. This one really gave me pause, given how I feel about police with attack dogs and water cannons and men in white sheets. And I haven't come to terms with this one yet. This is a work in process. And last but not least is the legislation to make lynching a federal crime was introduced first in 1901 and was voted down over 200 times, but in March, it passed both houses of Congress and was signed into law by the president on March 29, 2022, nine days after I completed my Sankofa trip. Symbolic though it may be, it's overdue. Uh, Nancy, you have really articulated a lot of things for us. Um, in particular, what you, uh, as we've been kind of talking about this, obviously, for a, a long time to get prepared for this morning, um, one of the things that you have said that's been really significant to me is this idea of uh, having our eyes opened more to the fullness of people, right? Um, and as you talked about the, the significant empathy uh, that that group had for you, for Dominique, let's walk at Sister Nancy's pace, of the lifelong friendship you've fostered with Jackie. Mm -hmm. um, really, a lot of what you have and I have talked about is this idea of having your eyes open to seeing that every person is made in the image of God. Um, even as you've 
wrestled with the realities of what the nonviolent movement was of realizing every person, every person is made in the image of God. Um, and so there was kind of a, uh, as we were figuring this out, there was kind of this, in, in my mind, this kind of capstone moment of, of seeing more of the fullness of Jesus, of kind of going through this resurrection experience, right, of having our eyes opened anew uh, to the way that Jesus is at work. So can you tell us a little bit about, um, in, in bringing all this together, um, about the Wales window in Alabama and kind of the significance of that for you? Mm-hmm. The Wales window was a gift to 16th Street Baptist Church where four little girls were killed in a bomb explosion. It was a gift from the, the, the country of Wales. The gift was spearheaded by a Welsh artist, John Petz, who raised the money, who designed the window, and who installed it himself in the church. He intentionally limited donations to half a crown, which at that time was about 15 cents, because he wanted the gift to come from the people of Wales and not be funded by a, by a single wealthy donor. Over 3,000 separate donations, many from school children, contributed to this window. What I see in this window design is a personal level of understanding, sensitivity, and empathy for the people who had personally lost four little girls in a bomb explosion. First, in this crucifixion, Jesus' skin is brown, which is much more like the people that are, are members of the congregation in 16th Street Baptist Church, and probably more like Jesus actually looked than the view that we often have of the white, blonde, blue-eyed Jesus. The next thing was the position of the hands on the cross. One hand is reaching out in forgiveness. The other is pushing back against the violence that would cause somebody to set a bomb in a church on a Sunday morning. The last thing, which you may or may not be able to see, are the words that appear at the bottom. You do this to me. You, yes, you do this to me. Um, as we're kind of coming near a close, one of the things I want us to uh, recognize and to name uh, is that for some of us, this can be really uncomfortable, right? To, uh, naming that these journeys are not easy, right? There's some significance of what happens in this, of having our eyes open, of retrieving things of value from the past as we seek to move forward. Um, even seeing an image like this, I know for me, this is also uh, seeing this image for the first time was the first time I had seen an image of, of Christ not with white skin. It was a, an eye-opening thing for me. And so we want to we wanna recognize and name that this can be uncomfortable. This can create spaces of conversation. And that's really the whole point of the Sankofa journey, right, is to, mm -hmm. as we're seeking to look back and re retrieve things of value from the past, how are our eyes opened so that we can continue to see the fullness of Jesus, Right, the fullness of humanity in each person. And so this, is, this journey that you have uh, brought us along um, has helped us to kind of open up our eyes and may make us uncomfortable or uh, bring, bring up some uncertainty. And so the thing we wanted to do at the very end is for us to kind of ask this question and for you, uh, you have beautiful responses to this. Um, what is it that we are responsible for and why do you feel like this is important specifically to you? As I told you, I'll answer your question, but not exactly the way you asked it. First, what we are not responsible for. I don't believe we're responsible for what we did not do. I do believe I'm responsible for treating others as I wish to be treated. 
I believe that I'm responsible for understanding that the life experiences of people who don't look like me often are very different from my life experiences. I'm responsible for using my voice when I witness words and actions that I know disregard the pain of others. I'm responsible for what happens on my watch. And I believe this is important because God asks us to treat others as ourselves. Nancy, I so thank you for your courage and your willingness to share this story um, and to bring us and invite us into this space. Um, one of the things we wanted to do, too, is uh, at the end, uh, after the service, Nancy will also be out in the narthex um, as we leave. If you want to ask Nancy other questions or the things that are stirring in you or have questions, come talk to us. We, we recognize uh, there's a lot that can be stirred up in us in these journeys um, as we are seeking to move forward uh, in, in faith together. Um, and that, to me, just brings about the, the need we have to experience resurrection. Right? The need we have to have these things in us that can sometimes feel dead, that those, those things need to go through uh, resurrection to see more of the fullness of who Jesus is. And so thank you for helping us to have our eyes opened today, uh, for helping us to see more of the fullness of who Jesus is. Um, as we were, uh, again, discussing the, the thing that felt the right way for us to close, um, is there's this uh, cherished prayer uh, from St. Augustine. Um, Augustine. Augustine. I did that last <laughs> time. Thank you for correcting me. Uh, <laughs> we need partners on the journey. Uh, and so uh, this, this prayer, uh, I, I will admit, has some language that's helping to shift our brain and our thinking, um, and it invites us into a kind of a different way of understanding things. And so I've asked Nancy to close our time, to close this sermon uh, with these words from this prayer. Uh, and so I invite you uh, to kind of close your eyes and to have your hands opened, uh, remembering that uh, at the very beginning, we talked about that feeling of, of this longing and this waiting, but also the intersection of disappointment there. And so the, the tension of those feelings, um, I invite you to hold those in honesty and transparency before Jesus, trusting that the Holy Spirit has been and will be at work. Uh, and uh, open your hands and be receptive uh, to the words of this prayer uh, from Nancy. Lord, make me a channel of disturbance. Where there is apathy, let me provoke. Where there is compliance, let me bring questioning. Where there is silence, may I be a voice. Where there is too much comfort and too little action, grant disruption. Where there are doors closed and hearts locked, grant the willingness to listen. When laws dictate and pain is overlooked, when tradition speaks louder than need, grant that I may seek rather to do justice than just to talk about it. Disturb us, O Lord, to be with as well as for the alienated, to love the unlovable as well as the lovely. Lord, make me a channel of disturbance.